So I look forward this morning to uh, opening up with you uh, John chapter 10. Just before we do that, let me uh, get the slides ready, what have you. I trust you, you've been having a good week and I trust that you've been enjoying just uh, working through the, the Gospel of John. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we we do thank you for this opportunity this morning to open your word afresh. And Father, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you will set our minds and our hearts on the task. Father, so often we are distracted by different things that run around in our minds, and when that is the case, uh, we lose the beauty of what you speak to us through your word. And we pray this morning as we come to a very familiar passage in the Gospel of John that by your spirit you will open our hearts and our minds to receive the wonderful message of the Good Shepherd. We pray these things now in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. We live in a world that is uh, completely removed from the times in which our Bible was written. And at times this can be a a real difficulty as we start wrestling with uh, particular pictures that are, are brought forth in the in God's word you know things of ancient times and we have in our minds when we, we start thinking about things of ancient times well how does that relate to us here in 2019 you see on the one hand we we firmly believe that that God's word the bible is exactly that his word It is profitable for all areas in life. It is there to teach us, to train us, to rebuke us, and to exhort us. And see, when we we talk in these types of terms about God's word, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that God's word is both authoritative, it is our authority in life, and it is also sufficient. Sufficient, it guides every part of our Christian walk. Sufficient for our sanctification. But, but sometimes it's difficult to correlate what we read here because the authors lived a long time ago. And they used different pictures and different symbols and different practices. And there were cultural anomalies in which they, they were writing about. You know, I remember when, when Jules and I had the privilege of, of traveling through Israel, we had in our mind a picture of what a millstone was. You know, I thought a millstone might have been about that big, right? And you read, you read things in God's word that a millstone will be thrown around your neck and, 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 okay, well, that's no big deal until we actually saw what a millstone was. 
Your millstone stands about this high. It is about that thick. And it's a huge, huge stone. Those are the type of cultural anomalies that we don't understand until we've seen it, until we research it, until we, we dive into the text. And as we look at today's passage, it's very similar to that. We may think we know what the picture symbolises, but it's not until we actually dig a little bit deeper. We look at the cultural elements of shepherding that we will start to gain insight and understanding to what Jesus is really saying. You may remember it was a while ago when we started the series, but I quoted from Leon Morris. And Morris said about the Gospel of John this thing. It's like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. It is both simple and profound. It is for the beginner in the faith and for the mature Christian. I think today we're going to do a little bit of wading and we're going to do a little bit of swimming because this is the the richness and depth of what we'll discover in John chapter 10. So please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10 and we'll study this wonderful passage together. See, John chapter 10, as you know, is a continuation of John chapter 9. It's a continuation of the previous dialogue. And and sometimes, and it's unfortunate that the editors of our Bibles place a a 10 in the middle of a dialogue. Because John chapter 10 is part of the ongoing dialogue that's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we won't really understand this dialogue unless we see it in its context. So John chapter 9, we had the, the, the wonderful healing of the man born blind, right? The sixth miracle, the sixth sign miracle inside this gospel. It's where Jesus declares that I am the light of the world. And where we have this almost dialogue between the blind man and the Pharisees because they can't believe, one, that he is now able to see. And he gets quite... Uh, sort of terse this argument between the blind man and, and, and the, the Pharisees or the former blind man because he now can see. And towards the end of this, these verses are said. So we'll pick up the story here in John chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus is answering the former blind man who has just fallen at his feet and says, Lord, I believe, I believe in who you are. And he worships him. It's a sign of a regenerated person. It's a sign of someone who's come to faith in Christ. And and that's what he's done. And, And Jesus said in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, 
but climbs in by another way, this man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. You know, for us to understand what Jesus is saying here, this emphatic statement, truly, truly, I say unto you, and then he says this emphatic statement which covers these five verses. And he is talking directly to the Pharisees. The dialogue is not broken. He is talking to these Pharisees. He has a point to make. And for us to truly understand this, we have to know a little bit about sheep. We have to know a little bit about shepherds. We have to know a a little bit about thieves and robbers and those sorts of things. So it's just as well we live in Australia, right? It's just as well. Did you know that Australia has 74 million sheep? Did you know that? That's three sheep for each one of you. Three sheep for each one. And you guys give me a hard time about being a New Zealander. (laughs) Who said that? (laughs) There's only 60 million sheep in New Zealand. Only 60. There used to be 90 when we grew up as kids, but we decided we didn't want so many sheep in our country. We only have 60, so that's only six per person. But I want to ask you a question. How many in this room here have a shepherding background? Particularly a sheep farming background. Who in this room? Put your hand up. I want to see you. One person. Two people out of 350. You guys don't count. You're from South Australia. So, ah, that's quite astounding, isn't it, really? So, That doesn't surprise me. So most of us here have a really limited background in what it means to be a shepherd of sheep. So, you know, my question is, what is is your view of sheep farming? You know, we obviously all receive the benefits of sheep farming, correct? The Sunday roast. (laughs) You know, when we lived up the hill, we we were on an acre a bit, and we were deciding to bring some sheep into the place. We never did, but it was going to be very clearly known that the sheep were going to be named. One was going to be Easter and one was going to be Christmas. (laughs) So there was going to be no misunderstanding about what happened to those sheep. But you enjoy enjoy the benefits of sheep, don't you? You've got woolen clothes. You enjoy the roast and those sorts of things. So you have some form of exposure there. But you know, in our Western culture, I I guess our sheep farming is dominated by one particular animal. It's not probably that particular animal, 
Because if that animal saw a sheep, <laughs> I don't know what it would do. That's our particular dog. So, but sheep farming in our Western culture is dominated by the sheepdog. Right? Why is that? Because the sheepdog drives the mob of sheep in our Western culture. Drives it from one paddock to the other. Will um, eventually drive that paddock of sheep into the stockyards and into the stock truck and off to the freezing works. It's really interesting. This is just a side point for, for sheep. Do you know when a, uh, sheep get to a freezing works? Inside the freezing works, there is a sheep called the Judas sheep. You know that? You know what the Judas sheep does? He, he, he leads the flock into the slaughterhouse. He has a mark on his back and the, and the, and the, the stockman inside the, in the freezing works pull the old Judas sheep out when the rest of the sheep are going <laughs> into the slaughterhouse. It's a, quite a wonderful picture, really. But anyway, back to this. Our Western farming culture is driven by the sheepdog. We drive sheep from one place to the other. However, this is not the Middle Eastern, Near East view of sheep farming. Okay? This is what happens with a shepherd in the Middle East. What's he doing? Firstly, he is with his sheep. He will call to them. He will make a noise. They'll hear his voice and they will follow him. So the sheep aren't driven. The sheep are led. We need to understand this difference as we open up John chapter 10. You see, in John chapter 10 and and verse 1, we see that Jesus is making this statement directly towards the Pharisees, the Pharisees who are considered the shepherds of Israel. And we see some characters involved in this story. He first identifies the sheep's major enemy. He identifies robbers and thieves, unauthorized people who enter the sheep pen. Middle Eastern sheep pen, you'd have a a sheepfold, a wall, a circular wall, either attached to a building or in the middle of a paddock, and you'd have a, a gate opening there. So the only way, and inside the gate opening, there would be a gatekeeper, and we'll talk about him a little bit in a little bit uh, time, but the only way that a robber or a thief could enter that pen and steal a sheep was either going over the wall or killing the gatekeeper. And robbers and thieves only have one thing on their mind when it comes to going into a sheep pen. They want to brutalize the sheep. That's their motive. So a thief and a robber would have to enter the pen by an alternative means. Because at the door of the pen was the gatekeeper. Read that in verse 3. There is the gatekeeper who opens. Now the gatekeeper is interesting. He is a hired hand. He is not the shepherd. 
The gatekeeper was somebody, uh, it was very much like a watchman. He would lie down across the opening, potentially in the evening, and he would serve as both the protector for the sheep and as the gate to the sheepfold. He would authorise entry into the sheepfold. Sort of a bit like the guys at the MCG, right? You go to the MCG and you can't get into the MCG with one, firstly, without your ticket, but then you have all these blokes there fanning you down and making sure you're safe. And you can't enter into that stadium without the go-ahead of the, the MCG staff. This is very similar to the watchman, to the gatekeeper in this story. You see, so two things are protecting the sheep. You've got the physical sheepfold, and then you've got the physical person, the gatekeeper. They're protecting from the dangers of wild animals and thieves. It's also interesting as we read these verses, and we'll come to the shepherd shortly in the second part of this chapter. But throughout the Old Testament, this image is not an unknown image. God's people throughout the Old Testament are always referred to as the sheep of his pasture. Look at Psalm 100, verse 3. Would you Bibles flick over there or just make a note of this and look at it when you get home today? This is what it says, Psalm 100, verse 3. Know the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we have this description of, of humankind and animals being sheep. Isaiah 53 highlights that, right? All we like sheep have gone, what? Astray. Each one has turned to his own way. So now, let's consider sheep. This is where your education really begins. What do you know about sheep? Okay. Because without, being, without having too much flattery, God describes us as sheep. <laughs> so let's go to the source and actually look at sheep. They're helpless. Sheep are helpless. They are absolutely hopeless outside the flock. They need a flock. Sheep need guidance because sheep are just a little stupid. But you know what? And these verses tell us a sheep can discern between the shepherd's voice and the call of a stranger. Isn't that tremendous? You see, in these verses, um, you see, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he hears his own sheep by name and leads them out. He calls them by name and leads them out. This picture here is Shane. This is a, you know, a watchman of the sheep wouldn't just have one flock inside his fold. He would have multiple flocks of multiple shepherds. And when the shepherd would come in, he would make a noise and he'd call his sheep by name and the sheep would trot out. 
They would not recognize the call of a stranger. The other thing you need to know about sheep is they do not take care of themselves. They require more than any other class of livestock endless attention and detailed care. Yeah, for instance, sheep during summer months can be driven to despair by nasal flies. That means flies up the nose. Or bot flies. What do you think that means? Flies on the backside. It is the most insidious thing. If you see a sheep in a, in a, in a paddock and they've got too much wool on their bums, whoops, backsides, too much wool on their backsides, when they relieve themselves, they have sheep poo all over their backsides and the flies settle on there, cause maggots and over time actually start eating the flesh of the backside away. Enough of that. You see, when the sheep is tormented by these types of pests, it's impossible for that sheep to lie down. It's impossible for that sheep to rest. Instead, they have to be on their feet stamping their legs and shaking their heads and looking for relief. Have you ever seen a sheep stamp its feet? It's quite humorous. But it's a near sign for a good shepherd to know there's something wrong with that sheep. The shepherd would also make a distinguishing mark upon the sheep. He'd grab a knife, grab the ear, and make a distinctive mark to know that that sheep was part of the flock. That would identify that sheep as the shepherd's. It's really interesting though. Have you ever seen sheep that are left alone? Probably not because we've only got two shepherds in the whole congregation here. So what happens when a sheep is left alone? They tend to become very discontent with one another. Do you know that? A rivalry and tension and a cruel competition arises within the flock because of the absence of the shepherd. They act like much like a pen of chickens, right? That's where we get our word, a pecking order from. Chickens don't cohabitate together very well. They're always pecking at one another, trying to be the boss. Well, sheep are a bit like that as well. Especially when the shepherd's not there. See, normally, a cunning and dominating old you, old you, we would probably say something like a nonna, will become the boss of the flock. Okay, I'm, no, I'm sorry to all my Italian friends, I'll take that back, that's, that's okay. But an old you became, becomes very dominating and becomes the boss and, and she wants to maintain her, her position of prestige by headbutting and driving yous away. Driving lambs away. She wants the best grazing spots for herself and favourite resting places. And you know what happens when the, the flock sees the behaviour of this old dominating ewe? What do sheep do? They follow that behaviour. So they all start doing it. And um, it's also this disharmony, this tension, uh, this behaviour means that the sheep cannot lie down and rest in contentment. 
is always at one another trying to be the dominant you. But you know one marvellous thing? I haven't seen this in action, but evidently this happens. When the shepherd comes into the view of the sheep, the sheep know who he is, and they forget their foolish rivalries. They forget their foolish rivalries. They stop their fighting. In the presence of the shepherd, the behavior changes. Wonderful truths as you consider what a sheep is. Throughout the Old Testament, God sees the leadership over his people as shepherds. You know, David was known as what? The shepherd king. The Levitical priesthood were considered shepherds of God's people. But ultimately, the people saw God as their shepherd. Psalm 95 verse 7 says this, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Because we we see, and there's an extended passage in Ezekiel 34, which condemns the shepherds of Israel. I'll let you read that at some other time. I'm not going to go through that. But what you have here is that God just condemns these shepherds because they are feeding themselves. And they're leaving the sheep to fend for themselves. And God actually says, I'm against the shepherds. And I will rescue my sheep from the mouths that may not be food for them. God says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. I will bring them out and I will feed them. I will feed them with good pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. And then in Ezekiel 34, towards the end of it, it, this wonderful prophecy occurs where God says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And towards the end of Ezekiel 34, we read these wonderful words. They shall be a prey to the nations no more. Or to the beasts of the land, they won't devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, or no longer suffer the reproach of nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, and my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God declares the Lord God. With this background, can you see the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees? He's making a clear link between himself being the good shepherd, which we'll read about shortly, and describing the Pharisees' behavior in this particular time, in this particular place, as those of robbers and thieves who have no care for the sheep. They are like the false shepherds of Ezekiel's day, these Pharisees. 
They are strangers to the sheep. They do not know the flock. And they do not know God as the good shepherd. And verse 6 tells us that they don't understand what Jesus is saying. This figure of speech, the symbolism of the sheepfold and the shepherd and the sheep, they do not understand. They should understand. They've got all this history from the Old Testament. So why don't that? They don't understand because they do not know the shepherd's voice. They do not know God. Let's turn to verse 7 and read the rest of the chapter, or the rest of this portion. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves and the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I make that I may take it up again. No one takes it up from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus starts to explain these first five verses to the Pharisees. And he starts again with an emphatic statement. There's two things he wants you to know. That he is the door, and he is the good shepherd. Please note, this is one long saying from verse 7 through to verse 18. And as we look at the first I am statement, because we know how significant I am statements are in the Gospel of John, because they declare that Christ is God himself, we see this very first one says, I am the door or I am the gatekeeper. See, being the door and the gatekeeper, metaphorically, is all about security and safety. Jesus states that he is the door of the sheep. He provides the entrance rights into the sheep pen. There is no other way of getting into the sheep pen than through the door. We get this a little bit in John 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. He's the sole entry by which a person is saved. There is no other entry into God's sheep pen. See, when you enter the sheep pen, you come into salvation. And what results? You can exit the pen in safety. It's guaranteed salvation is secure. The door also protects from the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. We have that in in verse 10. 
The thief only wants to steal, kill and destroy. Only wants to place doubt in a person's mind about their salvation. But what we have here is the door protects, provides safety, provides security. And we see here that Jesus, as the door, came so that the sheep may have life and have life abundantly. What does that mean? What does it mean to have abundant life? So I think this verse has been taken out of context so many times. Abundant life in the context of John chapter 10, in context of this verse, is what? Eternal life. Salvation. That's what it is. It's not a health and wealth false gospel. This verse is a a proverb in many ways and it insists on a few things that there is only one means of receiving eternal life and that is through the door. There's only one source of knowledge about God and that is through the I am, the good shepherd, the door through Christ. There's only one fount of spiritual nourishment. There's only one basis for spiritual security. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's what Jesus is stating here. And then we move on to the second I am statement here, and it says, I am the good shepherd. We started reading about the shepherd at the start of the chapter, and we see that the shepherd is the authorized caretaker of the flock. And to be a caretaker of a flock requires dedication, courage, and vigilance. The shepherd spares no pain and, and well. Morning to dust, the shepherd is selfless and alert to the welfare of the flock. Remember, we talked about the sheep needing great care. The shepherd knows his sheep. He is recognized by the watchman and by the sheep. He leads them out for their own good. Verses 3 and 4. The goal of the shepherd is to keep this flock peaceful and contented. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, it implies a really practical and profound working relationship between a human being and his maker. The good shepherd provides rest and a sense of freedom. From fears, from tensions, from aggravations and from hunger. The good shepherd is always nearby. He knows the sheep by name. He calls out to the sheep and they know him and they follow him. The shepherd calls the sheep by name. Please notice that. It's individual, not corporate. Your salvation is an individual thing. Your salvation is not based on the fact that you've been brought up in the church or brought up in an ethnic group or brought up in, in whatever a form of community. Your salvation is based on the fact that Christ calls you by name. Jesus here is initially 
calling the Jews out of Judaism, but in verse 16, he later tells us that he will call those from a different flock, from a different pen. That's you and I. Isn't that tremendous? The good shepherd is concerned about the flock of the world. You get that back in the prologue. We started back in John 1, those many, many months ago. You you see that. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's the basis of the good shepherd's call. But do you notice the the key difference here as we go through what the good shepherd does? He changes the whole shepherd motif within these verses. Changes the whole picture. How does he do that? How many times in these few verses is this phrase repeated? I will lay my life down for the sheep. That's the key difference of the good shepherd versus any other shepherd. Is that he will lay his life down for the sheep. This is the key point of Jesus' teaching about the good shepherd. And it's an act of his divine voluntary will. Get that in your minds. Because this is a completely new concept. A shepherd dying for the sheep. A shepherd becoming a sacrifice for the sheep. A shepherd that takes away the sin of the world. A shepherd with divine authority to not only determine the time of death, but raise himself from the dead. This is something I had never seen before in this this back end of, of these verses. That Christ himself, under his authority would lay his life down and raise himself up again. The authority invested him by the Father. And yet we've been reading through this gospel. Remember how many times we see that phrase, and my time is not yet near. My time has not yet come looking to his crucifixion. And then we see here, the time is in my hands. And it's his voluntary will through God's definite plan that he goes to the cross. And this is the amazing thing. The good shepherd is the lamb of God. Don't miss that. The good shepherd is the Lamb of God. The one who takes away the sin of the world. The only one that provides salvation. When Jesus talks these things, what happens? It divides the people yet again. Divides the people. Verse 19, 20, 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. 
Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Linking it straight back into chapter 9. You see, Jesus always divides. Always divides. His words always divide. There's no grey. And the challenge is here. Do you know the good shepherd? Do you know and trust the good shepherd? Do you know it's only he that provides entry into salvation? Do you know that it's only he that calls you by name? I trust you know him today. If you don't, get on your knees and call out in repentance like the blind man. He's the only one that can save. It's not your heritage. It's not your family community. It's not the church you belong to. It's the fact that Christ will lay down his life for you. If you're a believer here, how's your walk with the Good Shepherd? Can you say with David the psalmist, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And this is the key. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Our great shepherd, the good shepherd, is amazing. Be led by him. Listen for his voice. Be guided by him. Don't be distracted by the wolves and the thieves and the robbers. Fix your eyes on him, the shepherd 